Welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a weekly podcast for parents of challenging children with your host, Angela Sunis, author of the Amazon best-selling book, Different From The Other Kids. Each week, Angela interviews an individual or professional within the mental health community. I have a wonderful guest here today. Her name is Tash. She's a buddy of mine. Um, I've never really known what she did. All I know is that when she's talking about her clients uh, that often have addiction issues, they often have uh, mental health issues, she calls them my people. And as soon as I run across somebody like that that works day in, day out tirelessly uh, with uh, any individuals that are struggling like that, I tend to want to get to know them just a little bit more. I have something here from the Canadian Mental Health Association just to give you a better scope of what it is that she's doing, but let's start with how she describes it. She's a mental health addictions justice uh, program developer, and she does psych consultants and is a clinical supervisor. So the scope of the issue, according to the Canadian Mental Health Association, is people with mental illness are increasingly involved with a criminal justice system that often does not have the capacity to assist them. More than one-third of all calls for Vancouver police involve people with mental health issues. In the downtown east side, it increases to almost one in every two calls. A CMHA BC division study found that over 30% of people came into contact with police during their first experience trying to access mental health care in BC. In the court system... The Street Crime Working Group, which is a committee of the BC Justice Review Task Force, estimates that 35 to 40 persons with mental illness appear in Vancouver provincial courts every day. The most common offenses committed by people with mental health problems are thefts under $5,000, assaults, and breaches of court orders. In the prisons, research indicates that the majority of those in BC prisons face mental health problems. A 2008 study found over 30% of the corrections population had been diagnosed with a substance use disorder and an additional 26% were diagnosed with a mental disorder. Of those diagnosed with a substance use disorder, more than 75% were also diagnosed with a non-drug related mental disorder. Corrections Service Canada reports a considerable increase in the number of offenders experiencing mental health problems upon admission to CSC facilities. From 1997 to 2007, rates have risen by 71% among men and 61% among women. What I want to know is in the year 2016, what does that look like now? So that is my little rant for the day. Tash, welcome and take it away. Thanks for inviting. I'm a manager of mental health and justice programs. So that means I'm working with a staff of about 15 to 20 who are case managers for people with uh, mental health issues, addictions and justice issues. They would call you a frontline worker or you oversee the people that are on the front lines. Uh, more of an overseer, so more of a program developer. I give the staff support through meetings, psych, psych consults, and clinical supervision. Okay, so when somebody comes into your program that requires some help, where might they have come from? Currently, uh, the justice programs in Old City Hall and College Park are um, run by Fred Victor. I come from an agency that just got recently integrated from um, CRCT to Fred Victor, which is an amazing 
large organization that works for the homeless in the city of Toronto. The individual may have come through the justice system looking for diversion. So they may have mental health undiagnosed. They see a psychiatrist. They hook up with my team there, court support workers who will help build up a network of resources for them around them in the community. They then go to the judge and if they're deemed fit, um, they'll go through the diversion program and their charges will be let go. If they come in, they're being accused or they've been arrested for something, and then you actually set them up with what they would need mentally, and then the courts may look at, once they've gone through treatment, they look at it differently. Yeah. It's looking at people who are um, living with mental health in a different manner. Maybe they've done something that's against the law because of their psychosis or they're unwell and they're not they don't realize it and they don't have enough supports or um they're not along their recovery as much to stay out of jail or stay out of the justice system so the program the court support program will try and build up enough support with their obviously agreements it's only a voluntary program so they can start addressing some of the issues that will try then maybe keep them out of the justice system so you go through the gamut of housing, I would assume. Do you help them uh, ever become employed or where does it start and where does it stop? Well, it depends on uh, the individual. Obviously, recovery, we work from a recovery-based model, working with someone's journey individually. So every journey is unique. Whatever they present, the caseworker will work with what they're presenting. So it's like a needs-based way of working with someone, which is a change. Um, before it used to be more of a dictating, I'm well, I'm a, I'm a case manager and I think this is what you need. But really, in order for the journey to really work and someone really start being well and, and, and having hope and empowerment in their own life, then this is the best way to start working. Obviously, affordable housing, especially in the city of Toronto, is underfunded, so there isn't enough affordable housing. So the case managers will navigate their way through um, the shelter system, affordable housing system, really giving the individual support in order to find uh, an appropriate place for them to live, fill out forms, which are many, oh, put yeah. them on the waiting lists, which are very long. Um, currently, the wait list for affordable housing, if you have mental health and justice involvement, is a year. If you have not a justice system, but just mental health um, or homeless and poverty. It's up to seven years now. Everyone mm -hmm. should have a right to have a house. Mm -hmm. Everyone should have a right to have a roof over their head. And a shelter is not a roof over their head. It's an emergency, temporary thing. Yet we have, see people living in shelters for more than two years. And where are, how many shelters are there? And I would imagine that they're overcrowded as well. Oh, yeah. We have um, the agency that I now work for, Fred Victor, is a housing first agency. And they have um, four shelters, two drop-ins, and one 24-hour women's drop-in that's just opened this month, which is brilliant, especially for some of the um, sex worker ladies, um, trans community, where and people who just don't feel safe being in the shelters or who have had restrictions in shelter living because of their mental health. Is there a course that you take or there is it a uh, discipline within the universities, colleges? How did you how did you get into it? I am actually a journalist, um, <laughs> but I think what 
what drives or what can what helps you to get into the field is just a desire to help those who um don't have access or privilege um to navigate the city or navigate systems to help you know utilize things that help their lives get better um so i went back to school i have done a psychotherapy diploma but also um, women's studies, which is a lot of understanding about trauma, about group dynamics, oppression. And then I've implemented it through work experience, mm-hmm. becoming more of a managerial type of, of duty for me. But I would say social work degree mm-hmm. and, and life experience is really what gives uh, a person, a frontline worker, some really solid understanding and, and, uh, baseline for this work uh when i first met you you weren't doing this kind of work and what made you go back to it did you just need a break during that period of time uh yeah so when i first met you i was a yoga teacher yeah which i still am but uh i was working in abused women's shelter so residential setting for 10 years and couldn't take it anymore I wasn't well enough to keep my boundaries, oh. um, not to take things home. Your immune system gets weakened. Um, so you have to have, I had a wake up call. I got very sick and realized, okay, I need to stop, take a breather, reflect on what's been going on, reflect why am I doing this? And uh, so I went and retrained in something completely different. So I moved from the head to the body and I became a yoga teacher and i had two years off it was a wonderful time but i realized that i have strengths that i want to keep using with individuals especially in our society i've been to africa and i've worked in some charities there but really when you walk out of the door step you have people that need help immediately right near you so it's just my calling as well so i decided to go back but now after two years i've realized I'm a lot stronger. I have a lot more awareness of myself in the workplace. I have a lot more um, understanding um, for my employees. So mm. I use the education that I've gained through yoga, through meditation, through Thai yoga massage to really give them also more support um, in the work that they do, not just clinical. Okay, well, while we're on the subject, we'll come back to the subject of this work that you're doing. But you spent a very important, I think, winter away. Uh, Can you tell me about that experience a little bit while we're on? Uh, Yes, so part of my yoga training, um, and also I think part of my personal development, which I think is just key if you're going to work in the field of mental health or any kind of social service, Um, if you're not willing to develop and look at yourself, which can be tough at some times, you're you're not going to be able to provide the support that someone who really is vulnerable is going to need. So I think organically from my view of life and the yoga training, I decided to go back into the ashram that I was trained in and work for free for four months. Um, Where was it? In the Bahamas. It wasn't that tough, but it was <laughs> it was nice weather, tough living. It was um, it was about withdrawing from the external, um, really realizing what kind of crutches you I use and people can use to run away from themselves. TV, booze, sex, you know, the mm-hmm. gambit. 
um, even just reading or or keeping themselves occupied and not having time for stillness because looking within is quite um, intense. So the program that the ashram develops is called Selfless Service, which is volunteering. And really they provide a space for you to start to unpeel the onion. That's the only way I can describe it. You know, and sometimes you cry because the onion is strong. And sometimes, you know, you're starting to feel liberated, but then other things come up. And just by reflecting and working with a small group of people for so long, you basically see yourself everywhere. Everyone is a mirror. So even in your daily life in the city, it's the same, but you don't take time to reflect on this. Why do you trigger me? Why do you piss me off? But really, it's something about me. Mm-hmm. So having this no distraction, no TV, no booze, no sex, it's very clean, pure living, no meat. So everything is um, at a higher vibration, which allows them for transformation. I would say it was not the easiest thing I've ever done, but something I will cherish. And I, I changed completely from it. So you can't, I can't go back now. I shed a lot of layers, a lot of onion layers. And uh, it was worth the, the trauma of facing myself every wow. day. Yeah. So you bring that with you now into your work. Do you think that you'll ever be affected the same way that you were uh, when you got out of it two years ago? Uh, definitely not. Um, I really, even though you're shedding layers that seem protective, Um, You know, you build up a defense, you uh, block things down, and you would imagine if you peeled off the layers, you'd be this like, this is how I can think of it in my head, this vulnerable being, you know, that's super sensitive and super light to any kind of energy that's coming in. But actually, as you peel off your defenses, you peel off your barriers, and really get to know your true self, that's your real solid strength. And, And that is unbreakable and that can always be built up um but i think once you have a sense of this even if it's fleeting of true self then you're stronger to navigate in life not only at work but in your private life and in the life that surrounds you so i'm hoping and i've noticed a difference in the way i work with my teams now with this immense learning that I'm still learning from. And it was a year ago. Oh, that's, that's unbelievable. So if we're talking to parents from working on the front lines, which they actually do every day, Mm -hmm. if they have a mentally ill um, child or teen or youth or even young adult, what advice might you be able to give them on how they might best be able to center themselves every day? That's a big one. It is huge. It's a big one. I mean, the first thing I'd like, I would love, you know, I'd like to say is that you're not alone and go seek out people. Go seek out other parents, um, join groups, go on the internet, find groups in your area, find groups on the internet, because it's a very isolating experience, especially if it's new, especially if it's unexpected, especially if there's um, drugs and addiction involved in it. Um, So that would be my, don't do this alone. You aren't alone. You may feel alone, but you definitely aren't alone. And there are so many resources out there for you. If you don't know how to navigate it, because it's a very complex and multifaceted um, field, 
go to somewhere that you know and just sit with that person say look I need help I don't know what this is even going to look like for me and maybe this person can give you names and numbers and just try different things you might find that going to groups really works for you you might find it overwhelming and want to see a one-on-one person or you might not even be able to speak about it from my background in meditation and yoga moving your body and and moving your mind into your body a little bit more will help you center more into the moment rather than the story. Not letting your whole life be taken over by it. You still are an individual. You're still a human being, a mom, a woman, or a dad and a man. Keeping a little part of you and remembering that you have to be strong, but you still need help and you still can cry and you still can get angry and not to feel guilty about it because not only is it your child's journey, recovery to wellness, it's your own. And it's also your own in defining what family life is like or what life is like as as your pod. And it may be that you have to change some things and that can be scary. So to talk about it is really, really key. Thank you very much. I'm going to let it go this episode for now and invite Tash back for one more. Hopefully she has the time for it. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today, everybody. Uh, Thanks for listening to Different from the Other Kids. Made possible with the support of Raven 5. We are Contest Marketing. You can find them online at www.raven5.com. That's raven, the number five, dot com. Music and editing is a product of Among the Crowd Productions. You can hear more at www.amongthecrowd.ca. We'll see you next week. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different from the Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider.